This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Benign and malignant salivary gland tumors reveal overlapping clinical and pathologic features, imposing dramatic diagnostic and therapeutic challenges. This podcast will take a closer look into the perplexing world of salivary glands. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Joaquin Garcia, Vice Chair of Laboratories in the Division of Anatomic Pathology and Medical Director of the Histology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Garcia. How are you doing, Justin? Good to be here. Excellent. So let's let's get started. Uh, kind of like, uh, can you give us a little background about how you came into this world of uh, anatomic pathology? And also, where did this interest in salivary gland tumors come from? Well, I would say almost by accident for both those questions. Uh, when I was at UC San Francisco, I was training in anatomic pathology, and I was really interested in staying on staff. Uh, so at that time, the uh, director of surgical pathology had spoke to me about some opportunities, and they really pushed me towards head and neck pathology, even though it didn't seem intriguing at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they lined me up with a good mentor, Harvey Klein, who was an exquisite head and neck pathologist, and he just continued to coach me and get me into some interesting cases and tumor boards. And uh, eventually he got me to apply to a head and neck fellowship at uh, Pittsburgh Medical Center with Dr. Leon Barnes. And uh, the rest is history. I just kind of fell in love with head and neck pathology. And within head and neck pathology, you commonly encounter questions about salivary gland tumors because people encounter them infrequently. Uh, even though it is entered in the differential diagnosis quite a bit, uh, the actual diagnosis of salivary gland tumors is quite uncommon. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on yeah, how to, um, you know, uh, what are the things that typically come to your attention when people are asking about salivary gland tumors? Yeah. So, well, typically these, these tumors present just by uh, visual inspection, either by a patient or a spouse, maybe a dentist. They may see a mass, a little facial asymmetry. They may feel a little nodule uh, with their tongue. Um, and oftentimes we can just get a small biopsy because a clinician may not know if they're dealing with something um, infectious or medical or neoplastic and if neoplastic benign or malignant. So we'll often start with a small biopsy and therein lies one of the challenges, trying to make big decisions with small pieces of tissue, particularly if you don't encounter them frequently. So salivary gland cancer in general is, is pretty rare. Only about seven to eight people uh, per every 100,000 people in the United States mm-hmm. uh, will get it. Um, and so for that reason, in the consult practice uh, at Mayo Clinic and head and neck, uh, the head and neck pathology section, we get a fair number of salivary gland tumors because people aren't as comfortable as they are handling some of the other lesions that are a little more garden variety and common. When you talk about getting a small biopsy, are we talking about getting like a punch biopsy, like I'm thinking about for skin, or are we talking about like a fine needle aspirate where you're just getting uh, cytology? Kind of the entire cells? range. It's a good question. Uh, so it could be... Um, just a little small core biopsy, maybe uh, fragments of tissue that measure uh, five, six millimeters in greatest dimension. It could be a fine needle aspirate. Um, And also it's practice dependent. Mm -hmm. So here at Mayo Clinic, we tend not to fine needle aspirate these lesions prior to surgical excision. Uh, We also tend not to get a core biopsy simply because these lesions will ultimately go on to get completely resected with a few uh, exceptions like in the setting of lymphoma or 
um, a patient who's not a good surgical candidate. So for that reason, we will often take them straight to surgery. Whereas other surgical practices, uh, they live and die by the FNA, uh, uh, FNA biopsy to determine what type of procedure they'll set the patient up for. Could you kind of get into a little bit on why, why, where does this challenge come from? Whether something is benign, malignant, kind of predicting that behavior. I mean, for the clinicians that are listening to this or students that are listening, I think sometimes there's a perception of almost like there's a sign that, that each of these cells are holding to say yeah. what they are. Could you kind of elaborate for uh, those of us that don't practice anatomic, anatomic pathology what that, uh, what goes into this thought? Absolutely. So in attempting to make the distinction between a benign and malignant salivary gland tumor, you often need to see the interface between the tumor and the benign adjacent parenchyma Mm -hmm. of the patient. So the normal structures. We want to see how that tumor is either pushing into those tissues or infiltrating and wrapping around. So if we see that tumor infiltrating in, in between blood vessels and fat cells, then we're probably going to more tend to call this a malignant uh, entity as opposed to something that's well circumscribed and just has pushing borders. So to this end, when we get a small biopsy, it's often difficult because you don't get to sample that interface or the entire interface. Beyond that, um, within salivary gland tumors, in addition to seeing the, uh, the interface to make the distinction between benign and malignant, a lot of the, the cells are seen in both benign and malignant lesions. So you can see ductal cells, myopathial cells, uh, asner cells, and so forth. So the same players can be seen in both good and bad diseases. Oh my gosh, it sounds like that's really a challenge. Then how do you how do you train up pathologists to make these calls and recognize malignant from benign when you got these same players here? Uh, a lot of it just becomes pattern recognition, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, your gut diagnosis, but uh, we also have a battery of tests that we can use. We use histochemicals tests, for example, uh, mucin stains, mucicarmine stain for the diagnosis of mucopodermic carcinoma, PSD stain for acinic cell carcinoma. We have immunohistochemical stains. We have in situ hybridization stains. We also are starting to lean more on our uh, cytogenetic and molecular assays, including NGS assays, uh, such as RNA-seq, uh, to make a confirmatory diagnosis of a salivary gland malignancy. And then beyond that, beyond making the diagnosis, we often try and direct care. So if we can uh, make a diagnosis of salivary duct carcinoma, which is a very high-grade malignancy and often results in cervical lymph node metastases and very poor outcome for patients, uh, we can then determine if that patient may benefit from, say, angiogen deprivation therapy. Mm. So we'll test the tumor for angiogen receptor expression, or if that patient would genif- uh, benefit from trastuzumab or Herceptin. Uh, so we'll look for HER2 overexpression either by uh, immunostains or we'll look for amplification uh, using cytogenetics. I'm curious, could you kind of elaborate on some of the testing, the additional testing you're talking about is going to be a slide-based testing. You're talking about immunohistochemical staining. So that's uh, for listeners when you have a section of the tumor on the slide and we'll apply certain stains on top of that to, I guess, get a sense of what is present and also in a location-specific way. And then other tests that you mentioned uh, will actually be really, I, I guess, like in, in liquid kind yeah. of uh, sample. And could you kind of talk on when you might choose one, uh, yeah. the one route versus another? Yeah, you're, you're asking some excellent questions here. Um, really, we're, you know, as you're alluding to, we are trying to move as close as possible to being a liquid biopsy type service where we don't have to uh, 
incorporate invasive procedures into practice. Uh, so uh, large excisions or even core biopsies or even FNA biopsies. Can we look for um, antigens in the uh, serum that'll indicate this or even immunoprofiles that'll indicate this that a patient has disease or recurrent disease? We are just starting to um, swim in that territory primarily because we're, f for the first time within the last 15 years, identifying disease-defining cytogenetic fence in uh, salivary gland malignancies. So previously, uh, tumors such as secretary carcinoma or clear cell carcinoma, mucoepidermic carcinoma, would be identified based on their histomorphology, so how they stained with an H&E stain, uh, what their immunophenotype looked like. Looked like. Uh, but now we're able to use more specific, uh, accurate uh, armamentarium, specifically uh, cytogenetics and molecular genetics. So you're talking there, in a more targeted way, you're saying you're able to make a, a diagnosis. Does that, is that also true for how we're treating these uh, cancers? Are, are we able to do targeted therapy based on the pathology that we're getting? Absolutely. So that's, again, uh, an uncharted territory for us. Uh, but if you look at, say, for example, uh, secretary carcinoma, which is commonly characterized by ETV6, NTRAC3, fusion transcript, we now have um, therapy available for these uh, patients because that cytogenetic abnormality is not exclusive to salivary gland malignancies. It's, it's seen in other anatomic sites. And so uh, targeted therapy has actually been attempted on those patients in those settings. Join us for the 23rd International Surgical Pathology Symposium to be held in London, May 5th through 8th, 2020. Visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash 2020 SurgePath for more information. You've just recently uh, completed a book, I see, uh, The Atlas of Salivary Gland uh, Pathology. I'm curious, what surprised you most about uh, what it took to put together this atlas? Uh, the time. It took, it took a lot more time <laughs> than I anticipated. Um, I think the book has around 750 micrographs. I took 2,500 micrographs, more or less, and I certainly lost some vision along the way. I could, I could tell <laughs> that I needed to get a new prescription for my sunglasses and contacts and just reading glasses. So... Um, but it was a small price to pay. It was good to get that on paper. I see. Well, congratulations. Thanks. So uh, is it true that head and neck pathology is the most challenging uh, subspecialty within all of anatomic pathology? Absolutely. No question. So can we just uh, kind of pull back uh, now and kind of look at the, the forest that is salivary gland uh, pathology? And for the uh, student and for the clinician, um, what are some tips you have to kind of, you know, what sort of things should be features that are concerning that when you hear this in the history, you really want to do a, um, a thorough uh, exam of, of the patient's mouth and uh, face neck features? Well, I guess you know, there's some uh, generic features that would concern you. For example, if a patient had bulky lymph nodes or weight loss or a large lesion that was ulcerating, had a lot of erythema. So those types of generic signs would, would certainly uh, inspire alarm, any sort of mass. Um, but the challenge often becomes when we actually see the, the tumor under the microscope. Um, you know, a, a patient can have a very large six, eight centimeter lesion, it'd be entirely benign, or they could have a one centimeter lesion that um, has a 100% mortality with it. 
So it really comes down to our ability to make good calls uh, when we get to the microscope and we start to um, uh, incorporate the use of a lot of our ancillary testing. And I think one reason I like salivary gland pathology is it really reminds me of how we think when we approach difficult problems. Um, in, in surgical pathology and anatomic pathology, I think we often rely on rapid cognition, our ability to uh, identify an exquisite array of facts and data and make a decision that is, that is highly refined over years. But there's a subset of cases that don't allow us to do that. Yeah. So sometimes we can call the myopathelioma or the myopathelial carcinoma um, when we're comfortable, but there's times when um, the tumors start to break the rules. And at that point, what does your decision tree look like? What does your algorithmic thinking look like? And the Atlas of Salivary Gland Pathology was an attempt at me showing you when it comes down to it, and I don't use rapid cognition, when I don't use reflexes, how do I think about these tumors? And for me, it ends up being A, B, C, and D. I look at the architecture of the tumors, how the tumor relates to the surrounding parenchyma, because that often determines if it's benign or malignant. B is for biphasic. I look for the number of cells in the tumor, because that often delineates the, 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 the breadth of your differential. C is for cytology. I put that almost last because Students and residents often get seduced by cytology. They like mucin, they like hyaline, they get excited, and, and they often jump into the wrong diagnosis. And D is for differential, because just in oncology in general, you gotta, you gotta remember to, to keep your options open because you can get burnt. And to that end, your, your patients can get burnt. We've been rounding with Dr. Garcia about salivary gland tumors. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this interesting topic with us. Thanks, Justin, this has been fun. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and clinical practice through insightful conversations.